Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Mark Conte to the show. Mark Conte is an associate professor in the economics department at Fordham University and a faculty research fellow at New York University and a recent visiting associate professor at the Yale School of the Environment. As an environmental economist, his research pursuits often explore how market prices fail to accurately reflect the impacts of market actions on the environment and how market interventions can be used to achieve more desirable environmental and social outcomes. Prior to his arrival at Fordham, he was a postdoctoral research fellow at Stanford University, where he was a key contributor to the Natural Capital Project. Mark earned his PhD at the Bren School at UCSB as a trainee in the NSF-funded IGERT Economics and Environmental Sciences Program. Mark, how are you doing today? Raj, I'm doing well. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. It's a, I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, Mark. Mark, I'd like to open this show by asking, if you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? This is not a professional note, but I've become over the last 20 years of my life a rather interested bird watcher, and I get great joy in seeing usual birds as they migrate through where I live in the New York area. But I also take great pleasure in in seeing unusual uh, birds. And this winter, I was very fortunate to be able to see the the first snowy owl that has visited Central Park since 1890. That was uh, the first snowy owl I'd seen in my life after several years of looking around for them during the winter. And it was a very exciting moment for me. How did you become interested in bird watching? My uh, my childhood was not an extreme outdoors experience. I never went backpacking or or camping with my family, but we did a lot of walking outside. I spent a lot of time outdoors, and I think that developed an an interest in the natural world, which carried over into my studies, uh, pre graduate and, and graduate studies, and. Birdwatching came about. I had been a management consultant in in Manhattan for about a year and a half after college, and found that it wasn't really um, the lifestyle didn't really suit me, and the kind of the what I felt was a bit of a lack of rigor with the analyses that were had to be provided on short notice to clients. So I applied to be an intern on the Fairlawn Islands. Uh, banding elephant seals and tracking nesting birds of a few different species. So I spent four months living on this island with two other people. Um, and that's where I really developed my appreciation for birds and as representatives of, you know, the great diversity of life on the planet. What were the most popular birds on the islands? 
the most prevalent was the, the common myrrh. It's the northern hemisphere equivalent of the penguin in its coloration. It's a black and white seabird, although they can fly, um, but they do look equally formal shuffling around on land as they're nesting in their rookeries. They're a dignified bird. Uh, but I think some other highlights for me were uh, a puffin, the only puffin I've ever seen. And then in the non-bird area, there's just lots of wildlife out there. That's where I saw my first killer whales, um, several different other whale species that are a little more common, the gray whales migrating by and humpback whales. It was just a, a terrific opportunity to be out in a, a place that felt pretty wild uh, at a time when there aren't that many places, certainly in the U.S., that feel that way. And I think that's the appreciation uh, for the natural world that you really need to have to understand the impacts that our everyday behavior has on these other animals we share the planet with. So how did you go from management consulting and bird watching to teaching at Fordham University? It is, I don't think we have enough time for the full uh, <laughs> track on the conversation, but I will just say that this, this interest, which I had a, a double major in economics and ecology as an undergraduate student, and I tried management consulting as a, a path that seemed natural after the economics major, but I realized that my interest in the natural world was going to lead me and my interest in analysis and kind of precision and curiosity led me to an academic career. So after just, I found out while I was on the Fairlawns that I'd been accepted into my graduate program. Um, although my, my mom had to tell me when I got back to land, we didn't have, we had communication only by letters delivered by boat at the time. Um, but I was thrilled to find out that I would attend graduate school on a National Science Foundation fellowship at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And there I really got introduced to, of course, the technical details of economics in the, the PhD program there, as well as seeing fascinating connections between economic theory and our interactions with the natural world and goals of habitat conservation and preventing species extinction along with, you know, supporting health and welfare of, of people in, in the communities and around the world. So can you share more regarding the intersection of environmental theories and, and economics? Sure. I think um, many people are, when they hear the term economics, they are drawn to the idea of business and the economy and maybe even finance. But economics is a it's a social science that attempts to understand people's behavior. And uh, the lens that is used there is thinking about how people make decisions when they face trade-offs. So you have limited income and you're trying to make yourself as happy as possible through purchase of food and shelter and clothing and other market goods. And the idea of markets, the kind of tantalizing potential of markets is that sometimes under very strict conditions, if we allow people to engage in trade in a market, they will make society as a whole as well off as it can possibly be, which is a pretty astonishing 
result that suggests that setting up markets is all you need to do. And then regulators and governments can stand back. They don't need to intervene in our daily lives. And this is, of course, something that's very appealing and the laissez-faire attitude and the idea of libertarianism and, and freedom to make our decisions. But that result only holds under specific conditions. And one of those conditions is the idea that the price of an individual for engaging in some behavior is equal to the cost to society. So this, this private cost is equal to the social cost. And we know with environmental issues, this, this is not the case. Um, because if you think about, you know, what is the, the cost of manufacturing any good you consume, really, sneakers or your iPhone or something like that, that comes with the emission of some type of pollution. And that pollution imposes a cost on society through health effects directly to people and also the impacts on the ecosystems where the pollution is absorbed. And so that difference Sorry, this is a very long-winded response, but that difference uh, between the efficient market and markets that have impacts on the environment, that's where my interest in the natural world and the economic perspective really got me excited about exploring how can we change policies to change market behavior to get to better outcomes for society. So my understanding is that we've been under this neoliberal economic model for about 40 years now. How do you see things changing in the future, if you do? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I probably, I'm not very well suited to know what the, the winds of change are in, in terms of policy. But I think what you've seen in some of the movements in the United States and around the world over the past few years is a bit of a hunger for more government action. Uh, And and not not just any type of government action, but well-constructed, well-thought-out government action. And the potential of this type of government action and government programs to to make people better off. And you've, you've really seen this potential embraced in the first few days of this Biden-Harris administration with the COVID relief bill and, and subsequent bills where we're talking about lots of money being spent to provide uh, support for, for people who need it in these very trying times. Of course, some of it will be temporary, but also some of it is efforts to increase the, you know, the social safety net, the support programs that exist, because we understand that these unexpected events happen that can really challenge us uh, and and pose p- pose problems that are difficult for individuals to solve on their own. So, so I think we're, what we're going to see is, you know, as you mentioned, it's there's been 40 years and there's been evidence that this kind of free market approach doesn't do what we thought it would do. And the trickle down, you know, the supply side economics, there's actually empirical evidence, especially from recent experience in Kansas, that we don't get the results that people had uh, said we would. And now we're reverting back to a different direction where well-designed government programs uh, are probably likely to be adopted. And I think 
the government can play a, a huge and important role in society and in the economy by providing some assurance about people taking risky behavior. And what I mean by that, why that's important for the environment, you know, we have a, we've developed a society that at this point is very dependent on energy from fossil fuels. And a lot of our infrastructure is built around this, especially in the, the United States with our dependence on private vehicles for transportation. And so now that we know the challenge posed by climate change and the damages caused by the emission of greenhouse gases, we know that we need to introduce new technology into these markets. And we have to have firms who are willing to take the risk of developing new products so that consumers can maintain their lifestyles while having less of an impact on the environment. And, and that's a role that the government can play and has played successfully. You know, we hear about counterexamples where they make investments that, that don't pan out, but you can look at the success of, of a company like Tesla that received a several hundred million dollar loan from the government to get started. And I think it should be credited with motivating these major car makers. You, we heard the recent announcements from GM and, and Volkswagen is committed to electric vehicles, to adopting these new technologies. And I think that happened because the government provided funds that made the development of these new products less risky for these companies. So you mentioned the government and the role the government can play. We talked about the intersection of economics and ecology, and you brought up climate change. What are some of the benefits in your mind and that you convey to your students of avoiding climate change? Um, well, there's so much uncertainty around this issue that it, it is easy for people to say, because of that, um, maybe we can learn a little bit more and we can delay taking at costly action right now. But I will say what we've seen just over the past five or 10 years, when I was being taught about climate change in graduate school in the early 2000s, it was described as a problem that would really come to bear in decades or at the end of this 21st century. And now we're seeing reports that things could be dramatically difficult you know, in five to 10 years or 10 to 15 years. So in much shorter time spans. And I think the, the, some of these benefits, um, it's hard to know with certainty, but I think we're talking about increased extinctions for lots of species. We're talking about dramatic changes in coastal areas around the world. So there's this, I, this term of climate refugees, We've seen some people in uh, very low-lying Pacific islands relocate already. They've abandoned the island that they called home because it's just, it's being inundated by too many storms and by large, large tides on a daily basis. It's just unlivable. So I think there's a lot of potential conflict and a lot of potential suffering that can be avoided if we make efforts to reduce the impacts of climate change. So staying on the topic of climate change for a moment, have you seen an interest or perhaps a change of mind amongst your student body over the years? You know, New York is, is probably not 
uh, the first place you would think there would be interest in climate change. But my, my first year at Fordham was 2012. I arrived in the area from California um, in early September, and it was just you know, two months later that Sandy uh, happened. And that, I think, was a real eye-opening experience. And, and this is one of the, the challenges that climate change poses because there are risks of really extreme damages that people face. But those risks don't feel very tangible in the day-to-day -day moment. When we're making decisions that are contributing to climate change, it's, that trade-off is not always obvious. And in those, those first couple of years, um, I think there was more interest than I had expected from the general audience. I'm, I teach courses uh, for undergraduates that pull students from the kind of liberal arts, the core curriculum students, as well as the business, undergraduate business majors and the environmental studies program. And, and I think students have become more knowledgeable about it. These extreme events that, are, that serve as signals. So the fires in Australia and in California and in the West of the U.S. over the past few years and the hurricanes that we see and this amazing cold snap that, that Texas just experienced and, and suffered from. There are increasingly frequent reminders about the dramatic impacts that our behavior is having on the environment. So I, I have seen increased demand from the students, as well as, fortunately, you know, increased demand from the university and from other institutions you might not have thought of. So uh, Pope Francis's encyclical, Laudato Si, really emphasized the importance of stewardship of the environment and tied that to... Um, some aspects of the Catholic faith that I would not have expected. Uh, that's an audience I would not have expected this, this message to resonate with. But I, I think, you know, the further we go down the, this path, the more willing people are to acknowledge these trade-offs. And now the question becomes, is that acknowledgement sufficient for us to act in a timely manner and, and kind of correct the course we're on? So if you had the let's say, ear of the government or a large organization, and you could use perhaps some tools from your economics toolkit, how would you suggest that they make these more salient, make the issue of climate change more salient, where it's more top of mind for people? So one of my, uh, an active research project that I have deals with the tropical cyclones or hurricane damages to residential properties in, in Florida and the role that insurance can play as a signal of risk. So if you go back to thinking about markets being efficient, there's one frame of mind that says people are aware of hurricanes. We have, you know, centuries of experience with hurricanes in, in the U.S. and we know where they tend to happen and we know what portions of the continent are at risk from these damages. So we might think, you could make an argument that the property values should capitalize in that risk. And so places that are risk should have slightly lower value because of that risk. But if you think that maybe the infrequency of these events uh, 
prevents that risk from being at the fore of people's mind or from being as salient as it could be. We might think of insurance, you know, these monthly payments or these biennial payments every six months that they might serve as more of a reminder about these risks. And so one of the challenges that Florida faces, you know, the area around Miami has some of the highest coastal property values in the world. There's a huge incentive for policymakers there to keep property values high because that's the the tax base for property taxes. But there's also the challenge of having to deal with all of the implications of damages from these tremendous storms. And so there is a a desire probably from policymakers in the short run to look out for their constituents. Let's keep housing affordable. Let's provide insurance at at rates that are, are reasonable. But that's a little bit in conflict with the constituents' welfare in the long run, where it might be better for them not to have purchased a home that's going to continue to be damaged by these storms over time, especially if you think about different access to capital and income levels that might mean you people might be be stuck in, in these homes. And there's examples of that from around the country. Of There's the National Flood Insurance Program that the government runs, and people are live in homes that keep getting flooded and they get money to repair it, but they can't sell the home because uh, they can't afford to move or because people don't want to buy the house because of that risk. So I think I said earlier, I I believe in the potential of well-designed policy. The challenge is, of course, that people are very good at responding to changes in the way the game is played. And some policies that seem well-intentioned can actually lead to undesirable outcomes. You know, I would agree as you were speaking about insurers or insuring property, I was also thinking about the role that lenders can play. But again, you know, once they generate a loan for a property, then that loan essentially is packaged on and sold. You know, we saw what happened in 2008, 2010. Um, You know, one of the most common threads that I've personally pulled out from all the discussions I've had around climate change and, you know, these um, natural disasters is that if people were somehow required to take a much longer outlook time frame, mm-hmm. meaning that incentives, and again, economics incentives were tied to not immediate gains, perhaps in generating loans or packaging, you know, them into bonds or insuring, but almost like a clawback or insuring against people making short-term profits at the cost of those people that would suffer over time. Yeah. And I, th- I think the, you know, our ability to maintain long time horizons or to not discount future outcomes so great. Our need for that is very high right now, but I think our ability, our capacity for that may be at all time lows. You know, if we think about what our reliance on the mobile phones and in instant access to the internets and social media and all of the instant feedback that's available, I do get concerned that the need for and the focus for immediate gratification is becoming ingrained in us at a time when you're, as you said, and I think you're exactly right, we, we really need to have an ability to, to step back and, and think about future outcomes. And that, that's the challenge, uh, 
that's one of the many cha- challenges that we face. Although, as I said, climate change will have big long run effects, but we're seeing that that the period we have to wait before those effects become noticeable has has diminished and we're we're living with some of the changes already. I agree. So I'm going to change gears here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. You know, you mentioned your childhood and then the bird watching and the intersection of ecology and, you know, studying economics. But, you know, what what motivates you? What keeps you going? What drives you? Well, the answer I'd like to give is that, you know, I hope that some of the research projects that I pursue is valuable for some of that, the output there is valuable for policymakers. I, I, I would like to imagine that I am having some influence there. Although I will say in my um, experience thus far over the past almost 15 years, I've, I only know of one example where policy was implemented based on some of my research and it happened um the actual legislation was passed about eight years after we thought it would, you know, because of the, the political process and changes in, in leadership and in the state of Hawaii. And so I think that's probably not how I will have an impact if I have an impact at all. And the, the other way you have an impact is I think I have a very different life experience than lots of other people, especially lots of other people in New York. And so what I can try to do in my classes, in addition to my research, which, you know, my lectures are informed by the knowledge that I gain from pursuing these research projects, I can try to provide content that somehow intrigues or piques the curiosity of my students. And then these students who may have been in economics major, they may transition to become an environmental science major, or they may keep with economics, but think less about going into the finance sector and more about working on policy. And so I think that's the power that academics have is, especially as as we get older and kind of our influence as an individual gets minimized, you always have these, these next generations whose minds you can try to captivate and impact. And so I think my my motivation is I think things are not going the way we I would like them to go, but I do think there's a way to correct that course. And so I hope that I choose research projects that are sufficiently applied to have the potential to motivate policy changes. And then, of course, my interactions with these uh, young adults who are starting to question how their lives will unfold. Um, our conversations are happening at a time when they're not necessarily set in their ways, making them more open to alternative views and absorbing this information. So it's a it's that combination that really keeps me engaged and keeps me happy with uh, my career choice. Can you give an example of the intriguing content? <laughs> um, so, so one class exercise that does seem to resonate with students, both at the undergraduate and at the, the master's and, and graduate level, um, is this card game we play, which is meant to symbolize 
You can think about individuals contributing to a public good, so maybe preserving uh, open space in their neighborhood, or you could think about each of those students playing the role of a sovereign nation, thinking about making commitments to changing their greenhouse gas emissions. And in this game, I, we go through lots of different scenarios, and basically the, the choice that the participants have is whether they should make contributions to this fund effectively that will benefit the whole classroom, or if they should keep that money for themselves so they can get their own returns from that. And we we play under lots of scenarios, but one scenario where that tends to um, elicit a great reaction is most of the time I have people pay, pa pass their cards to me face down. So no one knows, every, every decision is anonymous. But then we play a few rounds where people pass their cards face up. And so the idea, of course, there is that there is some social or normative pressure that can be exerted um, to change behavior. And this is a really, this idea of information as a policy tool is really nice. So it's not as heavy handed as what we're used to thinking of as quotas or, or taxes, but just providing information about people's behavior, publicizing how people make their contributions can have a real impact. So in uh, the example that I liked, it was actually one of our last classes before COVID in the, in the spring, we were playing the, the game and people were making their contributions um, publicly, visibly. And people started cheering af as they saw that people were making their contributions uh, to the good, the public good, instead of keeping the, the funds for themselves. And you could see immediately that feedback uh, as we then played subsequent rounds, we, we saw a dramatic increase in the contributions being made. And so I think as I, I was just kind of denigrating our current state of technology and reliance on instant feedback, but you can also see that there is something so powerful you know, we, we crave acceptance and um, celebration and, and contribution and, and unity. And so there are, there, it does seem that there's this possibility that the, this next generation will think of ways to offer regard or celebration or kudos in a way that can motivate changes in behavior that we may not have thought about previously. You know, I can just see the um, Facebook or Instagram post right now going from look what I had for dinner to look which uh, charity I donated to. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we are, you do see some examples of that. Like, you know, we know that the I voted sticker or the I just donated blood sticker, that that's why those stickers are out. So you can feel happiness and also show to other people. And as you're pointing out, yeah, it's much more powerful when instead of just being able to show it to the four people you see walking home that day, you can post it and thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people can see that and you can really create these, these movements. So I think there is some possibility there, but as, as we've seen, of course, and as we know, there are lots of other uh, possibilities and, and maybe undesirable outcomes that can be spurred on uh, online. Absolutely. So, 
what's the most valuable lesson that you would say you've learned about yourself on your journey? Well, you, you were talking about before we got into this, this idea of curiosity and being a generalist. And um, I think in academia, there's so much to learn and so many nuances about a s- single topic that being a generalist is really challenging. And I, I think I have that curiosity as well, often maybe to my my detriment, that my ability to focus and dig really deep in, in one area is a little hampered by the fact that I think there are so many different theories and questions in this general area of environmental economics that that fascinate me. And what I'm kind of excited about as I get to the you know later stages of, of life and past the midway point of life, at least from the expected uh, life horizon in the US for men, is holding on to that that curiosity and using it and tapping into it to get me to stay stay focused and try to at this age change my approach a little bit and and stay very active and not in in a certain area and expand my boundaries strategically yeah i think we're all, all right. fighting calcification <laughs> so let's fast forward into the future it's 2030 if the government were to adopt one of your policies, which policy would it be? Hmm. Um, the idea of putting a price on th- these non-market environmental amenities so that we understand the, the cost of our action when we're weighing the benefits of consumption or production behavior um, is somewhat controversial in the broader sphere when related to climate change, although economists have been talking about putting a price on carbon for a long time. And I think that getting a a price out there, as as we talked about earlier, is is so valuable to provide tangible incentives. We're, We're seeing lots of companies make pledges to be net zero emissions by certain points. 2030 is actually a a date that lots of these companies are making that claim by, maybe 2050. Um, But to make sure that we follow through on this action, I think you have to have some some regulation in place or something with teeth to make sure that people stick to their word here and firms stick to their word here. And so I I think the, the one essential policy that we may be coming to is to get a, a price on the on the cost of carbon, to have some dollar amount that is uh, corresponds to the damages to society, whether through health effects, you know, natural disaster damages, impacts on the environment that have welfare effects for people because of our interaction with nature and the happiness we get from it. I think that's uh, a critical step to help, as I talked about, us work through this transition where we are really having a huge shift in the technologies that drive our society and, and moving away from our dependence on fossil fuels and thinking about being great managers and stewards of the the remaining ecosystems. I like that idea. It reminds me back to Economics 101, sticks and carrots. 
<laughs> yes, that's right. That, <laughs> that is exactly right. And you set up the cap and trade program. And for some people, this, this price that comes out there is the stick because you have to pay that. But for others, it's a carrot because you've changed your behavior and now you get rewarded for that. And so you're exactly right. That's, Absolutely. It's a powerful paradigm. Yes, it is. So Mark, I'd like to close with this last question. And you've already shared some advice, but if you could share some advice, and it could be personal or professional, you could be speaking to your students, some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I think our, our access to, I was going to say information, although I'm not sure that term is accurate, but our access to content online and the ability for people to get kind of immediate support although there's also immediate blowback over the past few years, I think has been critical in, in bringing to light several issues that have plagued society in the U.S., but also globally in terms of racism and sexism and misogyny uh, and all of these things that have really come to the fore in the past few years and the importance of maintaining respect for ideas in our interactions and not dispelling things off the bat. I think the balance that we have to strike when trying to address these problems is a, our willingness to be careful and to really think deeply about issues and also think deeply about other people's experiences because some of the some advice you give to someone, whether it's in our research context or in any other context, may come from a good place, but may not really resonate with them. And so I think as we're trying to come up with solutions to make life on this planet as pleasant for all organisms living on it as possible, is to really be mindful about the value of different perspectives, but also to distinguish uh, perspectives that are based on sound and meaningful ideas versus those that may not come from a great place. So really, this is a long-winded way of saying, I think we want to be evidence-driven in your decisions. And that relates to data and policy, but also relates to interactions. And it requires people to relax some assumptions that they have about other types of people and be more informed by their interactions with people and, and re relaxing uh, the natural tendency to kind of go back to these preconceived notions. I read a quote recently and it said, the greatest distance between two people is misunderstanding. Yeah, I think, I think that's, and you know, that's where we're, we're finding ourselves certain, certainly in this country right now, there's a lot of misunderstanding and we need to come up with a way to bridge that gap so that we can communicate these ideas and emphasize that there will be winners and losers from changes in, in life and moving away from fossil fuels to toward renewable sources, but that those winners and losers uh, can come together in a way to make everybody better off eventually. Uh, I love that idea, Mark. Great place to leave off. I so enjoyed speaking with you, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Raj, thanks again for this opportunity. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.